Okay, well, good morning again, and if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, why don't you go ahead and make your way to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. Up until this point, we've been looking at select portions of the book of Ephesians, but getting to chapter 4 now, we're going to take a little bit closer look at the second half of this book, which is the practical application of the doctrine that we find in the first half of the book. Let's begin by reading chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read up to verse 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The book of Ephesians is one of the most interestingly structured books throughout the entire New Testament. Many scholars have stated that if they had only one New Testament book to keep with them stranded on a desert island, it would be the book of Ephesians. The manner in which the structure of this letter is laid out is significant and it is important for us to see and identify before we can truly understand Paul's intention through this letter to the Ephesian church. Today we continue the debate between what is called doctrine and duty. Let me say that again. Doctrine and duty. There is a continued effort within the Christian church in America specifically that wants to continue to diminish the value and the importance of biblical doctrine within the Christian church across the United States. And it will often be demonstrated in sayings such as this. Well, it doesn't really matter what we believe as long as we love one another. Now, on the surface, it might sound good, and we are certainly not in any way diminishing the role of love in the body of Christ and the value of love in the body of Christ. But often, we can interpret that as meaning, well, there are non-essential doctrines of the Bible that we can agree to disagree upon and still remain in unity and in fellowship for the purposes and the cause of Christ. For example, do the gifts of the Spirit continue today? Um, The interpretation of Revelation. The, um, of course, uh, it would also have to be the establishment of the manner in which the uh, order of service within the church progresses. There are things that we can agree to disagree upon and still enjoy fellowship with one another. However, though, there are certainly things that we cannot simply disagree upon and still remain in fellowship. For example, the infallibility of the Word of God is one of them. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. These are all just mere examples of many doctrinal positions that we cannot just simply disagree and remain in fellowship upon. They are foundational to the Christian faith. 
The denial of the Trinity is something that we cannot simply just disagree upon and remain in biblical fellowship. Any type of application of works in the process of salvation is something that we cannot just merely dismiss and remain in fellowship with. That being said, the book of Ephesians clearly demonstrates to all of us that the doctrines that we do hold on to dearly are to have their perfect work within us. Now, what do I mean by that? It's the relationship of what we believe and therefore what we do upon what we say we believe. I would make the argument that if we don't respond to what we say we believe and conform our action, thoughts, decisions, etc., to that set of beliefs, I would have to question if we truly believe what we say we believe. You see, Paul saw a direct relationship between what the Christian believes and their duty in responding to that doctrine and the fulfillment and the perfection of that. And what I mean is living it out in the faith, uh, through the faith of the individual in their Christian life throughout the course of their Christian life. I'll sum it up this way. Doctrine matters, okay? Doctrine matters. And though we want to dismiss it, and we want to diminish its role, because many, when they communicate and discuss biblical doctrine, they do so painting it in a picture that it is more divisive rather than drawing people into unity. And Paul is saying just the opposite here. Unity often is uh, found through compromise and conformity. But the unity that Paul speaks about here, is fo- it's, the foundation of it is built on maturity. And that maturity is what we are going to discuss today. The Christian church was in its infancy when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church. Of course, as you come to the book of Revelation chapter 2, you find that the Ephesian church by 95 AD is already in trouble. Though they had many working aspects of the church and the church seemed to be flourishing and the church was moving and, and grooving within the society of Ephesus, they had left their first love. And Jesus calls them out on it. But Paul, if you go back to Acts, you discover that he had a real heart and passion for those in Ephesus. He warned them in Acts chapter 20 very uh, clearly that after his departure, wolves would come in sheep's clothing, trying to destroy the work that God was doing there. So writing this letter from prison, he is in Rome. Paul is writing a series of letters to a series of the churches in which he was fundamentally uh, used in planting He's writing to them not knowing the fate of his imprisonment. This is one of the early letters that he wrote from prison in Rome. And in the first three chapters, he reminds his readers of two dynamic aspects of the doctrine that we hold to as Christians. Number one, in chapter one, we discover very clearly all that we have been blessed with in and through Jesus Christ. Everything that is in heavenly places. After listing this incredible list that we covered in a message entitled Totally Blessed, 
It is clear all that we have been blessed with. And then he asks us in chapter 1 to have the wisdom to understand the incredible blessings that we do have in Jesus Christ. As you move into chapter 2, he then follows that by reminding uh, the Christians reading this letter that we have been showered with a grace like never seen before. And goes on to explain in chapter 2 how that grace is possible in and through Jesus Christ. Moving into chapter 3, he then reminds the church that the church is a unique work that God is doing. It comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And when you look through the book of Acts, Acts 15 and other places, you discover that that unity was very difficult in its conception and in its uh, implementation. There was a lot of division between Gentile and Jewish believers. In fact, the Jewish people really despised the Gentiles. Even questioning the, the, uh, how, how valid the salvation was that the Gentiles were experiencing. How could they receive the Spirit like we have and not have kept the law their whole entire life? In fact, Jewish teachers chased after Paul. And as Paul would go into a Gentile city, these Jewish teachers would come in after him and say, well, you know, Paul is talking about the grace of God, which is all fine and dandy. But you really need to become Jewish first before you can enjoy the grace of Jesus Christ. They were called Judaizers, and Paul refuted them very strongly in the book of Galatians. And so in chapter 3 of Ephesians, he talks about this mystery revealed that Jew and Gentile were going to be in one body, and this body was going to be called the church. And after reminding us of the doctrinal uh, blessedness of the Christian faith in the first three chapters, He then begins chapter 4, transitioning into the issue of duty, our response to all that God has blessed us with. And the first indication of that is found in the very first word of chapter 4, verse 1, the word therefore. I therefore then leads us to ask the question, what is it therefore? It's there because he's making a concluding statement. He wants them to consider everything that he has said up until this point, Writing from prison, he then asks them with the word that we don't use in our culture anymore, I beseech you. It means, I I beg you. I ask you to consider what the proper response to all that God has done for us is in and through the life of the believer. Christianity has always been initiated by God from the sending of Jesus Christ to the blessings that we have been given to the covenant that has been established, God has initiated all of it. And we now have the response to respond, the responsibility, excuse me, to respond to all that God has given us in the proper manner. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were told that if they do certain things, then they would be blessed. But in the New Testament, Christianity is God stating, I have blessed you with everything, Now respond accordingly. There is responsibility in the Christian faith. Though we are saved by grace, and no one is denying that and doubting that, the life in which we live must be consistent with what we say we believe. We don't live our Christian life to earn our salvation to merit our salvation, or to even maintain our salvation. We live our Christian life as Christians 
because we are saved. Demonstrating the new life that we have in and through Jesus Christ. And again, I think Paul would argue the fact that if you truly say you believe something, then it should impact the manner in which you live. And I believe that's exactly what he's doing here. So therefore, wrapping it up, he wants people to conclude, and like any good pastor, he then then begins the conclusion that lasts two hours long. (laughs) He says, I therefore, asking us to consider all the way up until this point, the prisoner of the Lord, he's writing from a place where he doesn't know his future at this point. Many scholars believe that it is Rome, it is his first incarceration, and he will be released, but at this point he doesn't seem to know that. He says, I therefore beseech you, again, a word that we do not use any longer, but one has translated it this way. God's saying, I have already blessed you. Now, in response to my love and grace, now obey me. That's what he is saying. It is also the term that he used in Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he stated in the conclusion of that dynamic doctrinal book, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, he writes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He then asks us to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word worthy will carry many definitions with it, depending on who you ask or how it is used within the context of a sentence. In this case, Paul is asking a simple question, and it can be stated, or he's asking a simple question, with all that you have been blessed with by Jesus, how should you respond? What is the only proper way to respond to all that you have been blessed with? all that you have been given, and the spirit that resides within you. How, therefore, should you respond? That's the real essence of the word worthy used here in this chapter. It's not that we earned it. It's not that we've merited it. It's that it's been given to us, and now we are asked to consider how shall we respond to it. And then he goes on, that that response needs to include these four characteristics, which will be the foundation of the unity that he is looking to preserve and to create amongst them. He says, number one, with all lowliness. Verse two means humility. Gentleness means meekness. Long-suffering means patience. And bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He is stating to every single believer in Jesus Christ that unity is all of our responsibility in maintaining. And there are four characteristics that we need to carry, a mindset that we need to carry, if that unity amongst us is going to be preserved. Satan's, one of his greatest tactics is to divide and conquer. And we need to preserve and we need to remain unified if we are going to weather the storms and the attacks that Satan will bring about. You know, the saying is true. The moment an individual or a church gets serious about God is the moment that Satan gets serious about you. 
the beginning of this unity has to be built on humility. Humility, again, is one of those words that if we take it in our modern-day context or our modern-day definition, we may lose the impact of the biblical understanding of the word humility, lowliness, as the New King James or King James Bible translates it. It means to walk with a proper perspective of yourself. That's what it really means. But to have a proper perspective of yourself, you must first have a standard in which to compare it by. What is the standard? Well, if I think that, you know, the standard is Mark here, I'm looking pretty good. And I'm so humble that I'm proud of it, you know. But the standard is always Jesus Christ. It's not the person sitting next to us. It's not someone that we pick out of a crowd to help ourselves look better than we do. It's a proper perspective of ourselves in the light of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but anyone who has a proper understanding of Jesus, it's really difficult for me to believe that they can respond pridefully to that. Well, I love like Jesus loves. (laughs) You have no idea. I'm as compassionate as Jesus was. You better just stop now. We have a long way to go. Humility is found when we have a proper perspective of us in the light of the standard for the Christian believer, and that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Secondly, when we talk about meekness, the word gentleness here is used in the English to describe the Greek word that is used for meekness. And many, again, meekness today means one who's cowering in a corner. One who is, you know, bullied and pushed around by someone else. But in the biblical context, it means this, strength under control. We do have a strength in Christ, don't we? But understanding that strength and that position of righteousness properly will allow us to govern it uh, consistently in meekness. A strength that is under control. The, the word in the Greek was also used in conjunction with the bridle that a horse wears. And of course, a horse is a large animal, you know? I don't know, though. Every time I seem to go horseback riding, they always put the biggest guy on the smallest horse. And they put my daughter on this, you know, uh, this enormous, you know, Clydesdale. And I get, I get this pony, you know? And it's just like, Wow. But it is amazing to me that I remember Autumn, you know, as she's riding the horse, this huge horse that she had, and she, you know, controlling it with the bride, you know, the bridle, and the horse was going wherever, the, you know, she was saying it to go. This little thing controlling this big animal, strong, powerful animal. That's the illustration of meekness that is used here. The next is, of course, long-suffering, which could be more adamantly Uh, or accurately translated, patience. Isn't it funny how impatient we are with other people who struggle with the same things we do? Our sin always looks worse on someone else. I wish we would show each other a little bit more patience in the process of allowing them to grow in the grace of God just as you and I are growing in the grace of God. And you can see how this long-suffering, this patience, would allow for unity to thrive amongst a group of people. 
to be considerate and compassionate, patient, knowing that we're all works in progress, knowing that God has started a good work in us and will be faithful to complete that good work in us. But in the meantime, it can be pretty messy along the way, can't it? I don't have to convince any parent here today of that process. It's difficult. But that patience needs to be adopted. And when it comes to humility, gentleness, and patience, it all must be bound up in the agape love that Jesus has demonstrated towards us. Jesus is the example of our humility. He gives us a standard by which to compare ourselves. Jesus is the example when it comes to meekness. There was nobody stronger than Him. And yet He bridled that strength and showed compassion onto His creation like we've never seen before. And then when it comes to long-suffering, how is it that we could even doubt for a moment that God, not only up until the point of Jesus' first coming, but until this day, His long-suffering, His patience, waiting, because hoping and desiring that all come to repentance before He finally returns and judges the world once and for all. And then when we find that everything that He does is wrapped in the love that He has for us, we understand where Paul is pulling all of this from. And he's saying, now, if this is your God, this is your standard. Now live amongst one another in this way and allow unity to be preserved among you. Understanding this, and here's the purpose for this unity in verse 4. For there is one body, that is the body of Christ, the church. There is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. For there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. That baptism, some believe, is water baptism. Other believes it's when the Spirit brings you into the body of Christ. I tend to lean to the latter. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Again, in these brief six verses, he's already demonstrated that the character of God that needs to play out in the doctrine that we hold to that is based upon His character, to therefore produce the duty, the response, the actions in which we live in our Christian life. And you see how it all comes together. But now that He has established the general's uh, principles, He then goes into the specific. Let us begin and continue in verse 7. Now, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captives, he led captive, captivity captive, excuse me, and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. 
But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. He proceeds then to get more specific in, his, in our understanding of unity. That though we carry these characteristics such as humility, such as meekness, such as long-suffering, wrapped in love, understanding that there is one body, one faith, one God, etc., He then goes on to tell us that this unity that we will enjoy is truly based upon a diversity. And that diversity is the different gifts in which each one of us possesses and has been given by the grace of God to be used for the edification of everyone within the body of Christ. You see, Christianity is not a spectator faith. It isn't a faith that can be uh, characterized by non-practicing Christian. That is what you would call a classic oxymoron. We must live out our faith. We have been given gifts due to the grace of God to fulfill various roles within the body of Christ. Whatever that role may be, it's significantly important to, number one, the health of the body, and number two, the growth of the body. So this diversity of gifts is also a factor that contributes to the unity of the body of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. That all of us living out, using the gift and living out our Christian faith as prescribed by God will contribute and preserve the unity amongst a group of Christians in any cultural society that they are found. But there's a second component to that unity. The diversity of gifts is one thing. But those diversity of gifts must be handled in maturity. And this is a very, very important conversation to have. What is a mature Christian? What does that look like? Well, that's a good question. Some would say maybe it's just reduced to how much knowledge of the Bible that they have. And you could understand where they may uh, get that from and how they may draw that conclusion, but it's inaccurate. Paul made it abundantly clear that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That the width and breadth and depth of our knowledge of God and I'm going to use maybe a word that is provocative to many, is irrelevant if we don't properly apply it within our life. Knowledge is one thing, but that's not our end game. That's not our end goal. Knowledge must be translated into wisdom in and through the life of the believer. The practical application of the knowledge in which we have. So we must be very careful not to diminish or reduce the understanding of maturity to the simple knowledge that one may have concerning the Scriptures. But instead of continuing on and looking at all the examples of what maturity is not, let me just cut to the chase and say it this way. Maturity seems to be displayed in and through the, the Scriptures as one, 
who is faithfully responsible to the knowledge that they have and applying that knowledge within their life. I have met Christians that I envy that do not possess all the theological knowledge of the theologians throughout the course of church history, but the manner in which they live out their faith in simplicity, the way they love unconditionally, the humility that they walk in, and the faithfulness in which they are consistently governed by is awe-striking to me. It is something that needs to you take a look at. And maybe you know a Christian like that. That as they learn more, they grow into what they learn, right? And that's not unlike our understanding uh, of maturity today within our society, right? There's a lot of very smart people who aren't applying any of that in their life. They're not getting ahead and they are in this arrested state of growth. They're in this continual immaturity and they're not pushing forward in their lives. Often these people are very critical of others. Well, they didn't put the period in the right place or the comma in the right place and they spoke and used the wrong word in the sentence. And yet, they still live in their mom and dad's basement They don't want to be responsible for their own life. It's always everybody else's fault, and they take no responsibility for the consequences of their own actions. You you get where I'm going with this. But it appears to me that throughout the Bible, that mature individuals are ones who responsibly handle the knowledge of God in which they have, continuing to grow in that knowledge, and to continually respond and living out the knowledge in which they have as they grow in that knowledge. And I think that's an interesting thing to consider as you work through the New Testament. Now notice what Paul says here. Though he speaks of a variety of different gifts within all of the Scripture, looking for a unity that is not based on uniformity, as one wrote, But a unity comes from within as a spiritual grace while uniformity is the result of pressures from without. I love what Worsby says there. But this diversity of gifts leads to a further unity within the body of Christ. There are three places. (laughs) There are three places. (sighs) Three places in the Bible that list these gifts for us. Of course, The classic is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and 8 through 8, and Ephesians 4.11 here in our text this morning. But the question that people always seem to come to, because all of us are governed by a pragmatic mindset, and that is, how shall I discover the gift in which God has gifted me with? And again, I wish I could tell you that there was some secret formula to that, answer, to that question, but there isn't. But I'll tell you what doesn't work. Many churches in the late 90s, early 2000s began to give their congregations what they called, and this is a, a phrase or a term they called to use for these tests, spiritual aptitude tests. And they would work through this spiritual aptitude test, and by the end of it, the person should have an understanding of what they have been gifted for within the body of Christ. But in reading these aptitude tests, because I did, I read through many of them, there's a distinction that they ignore. I believe that God has given 
uh, us natural abilities that differ from one another, and spiritual gifts that are completely a gift given by His grace. The difference between the two is though you may have a natural gift, it doesn't mean someone next to you has that same natural gift. It's, a, it's something that you have. Maybe you're an artist or a musician. Uh, maybe you're an athlete. Maybe you have some other natural gifting. You know, the old classic, you know, those who are good in math aren't so good in English, but those who are great in English aren't so good in math. You, you know, a natural gifting. And nine times out of ten, these tests led people into their natural gifting. Which led Christians then to say, well, this is the way God, excuse me, this is the way God wired me, and therefore, this is what I am meant to do. How many examples in the Bible do we have of God calling people to do things apart from their quote-unquote personal wiring? Even Moses debated with God. But, but Lord, I can't speak. Don't worry, I am who I am. Would you have picked the disciples? (laughs) You know, the only qualified one out of all of them was Judas. How did that work out? God often gives us spiritual gifts to go above and beyond our fleshly natural abilities. And that way, when the body is edified and God is glorified through that spiritual gift, He gets all the glory and we can't take any credit for it because we know it's all Him. It's above and beyond us, right? So we must be very careful. So I don't believe those spiritual aptitude tests were very effective. Warren Worsby said something I thought was brilliant. And he wrote it, I think, after his 40-some years of pastoring. He said he thought it was absolutely amazing that spiritual gifts were often identified as Christians simply fellowshiped amongst other believers within the local church. Meaning that your fellowship here on Sunday, your fellowship on Wednesday, your fellowship with one another often has a tendency to draw out from us and show us what our spiritual gift might be and how we may use it for the edification of the church. I think that's really insightful. And I would ask you to pray and ask the Lord, how would you use the gift that you have for the edification of this church? Because I'm telling you, if you're not applying your gift to our fellowship, we're missing out. And you're missing out, more importantly. And so allowing God to bring that out, be aware of what the giftings are in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 11, and allow God to draw them out. To help with that process of the identification of those gifts, notice in verse 11 that he has now shifted and saying that gifting is also indicated by the office in which you are called to within the church. Verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets. When Paul states this, now I do not believe that the apostle and prophet in the biblical sense is still active today in the church. This is the foundation in which God used, these are the individuals that God used to build the foundations within the church. But then... The evangelist then goes on to spread the gospel, to further the gospel throughout the world. That is one who takes the, the, uh, the, you know, the good news of the gospel throughout the world. And then the, the evangelist is complemented by pastors and teachers. And there's debate 
if this is speaking of one office or two office, there are men that I have seen that have been very gifted teachers, but they don't have the heart of a shepherd towards people. And others I've seen have very strong hearts for shepherding people, meaning coming alongside of them and working with them and so forth, but don't have the, the teaching abilities that a teacher might have. So it could be one and the same, or it could be two different offices. But though these offices are listed here, it is the work of these offices that's important for us to discover in verse 12. Why have they been appointed within the body of Christ? Now remember, when this was written, this was all new to the early church. But notice verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and here that service is the fulfillment of the gift and the edification of the body through the gift in which you've been given for the expansion of the body and the further unity of the body. I just wanted to expound on that word a little bit. And he says, for the building up of the body, which again means taking it from what, where it's at and bettering it for, and preparing it for the return of Jesus Christ. The word equipping means exactly what it means. It's giving you the ability to fulfill and to use your gift properly within the church. This is my role. My job is to equip you for whatever God may be calling you to. That's my job. Now, there's a problem today, and I just spoke with other pastors about this not so long ago. Here in Calvary Chapel, this has been a mandate of the ministry of pastors within our uh, fellowship of churches. The purpose of this is to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry, believing that God can raise you up to fulfill whatever ministry He is calling you to. But there's a problem. And as I shared it with the other Calvary pastors here in Illinois, uh, it was clear to them that they, were, they first didn't get the connection and then they started seeing it, and that is this. Though my responsibility is to equip you, what happens when you come to church not looking to be equipped? Christianity has become so self-centered in America. What can I get out of it? How can it benefit me? Lifeway has done polls and studies that show basically that the primary reason an individual attends church is to personally feel better. Some have, of course, reduced Christianity to a consumer faith, looking to get the most out of their tithing buck from the church in which they attend. If the hard attitude of those who come to the church isn't in line with Scripture also, then there's a disconnect between the teaching from the pulpit and the reception amongst the congregation. If I am teaching with the purpose of equipping you and you're coming to be equipped, there's a perfect relationship there. But if I'm teaching to equip you, and that equipping begins with the understanding of yourself to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after Jesus, that may seem counterproductive to you coming here and wanting to feel better. Do you see what I'm saying? Even though I would say, and again, this might be provocative to some, I'm going to say this, that maybe the reason you need to feel better is because you need to get your eyes off yourself and put them back onto Jesus Christ. So this is a very, very important aspect of our conversation this morning. 
I ask you to search your heart to see if you are coming here to be equipped for the work of the ministry that God is calling you to. Because that's what I'm trying to do for you. To prepare you to fulfill the ministry and to use the gifts to edify the body of Christ that God has given you through His grace. And if we can have that kind of relationship, it's going to be fantastic. But I'm going to tell you that if it is self-serving motivation in which you are bringing with you to this church, I think you're going to be greatly disappointed. Because we don't want to make it all about us, we want to make it all about Him. And there's a a stark contrast between the two. Now notice this. This this equipping also leads to maturity. Verse 13. Till we all, that word all includes every single one of us sitting here today. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice the connection between those two. To a perfect man. That word perfect means to be complete. That means to be mature. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Meaning that we have to dive into the deep things of God to fully benefit from all that God has for us in and through His Word. And as a result of maturing, notice this. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine that is, of course, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. A couple months ago, we were with uh, our my wife's side of the family, and we were sitting on the back uh, porch of Sharon's home, and there was a beautiful moon that was coming up. See, I got it right that time, because I'm not going to go there again. There was a beautiful moon coming up, and our niece has two of the cutest little girls that you ever want to see. And they are so fun to be with when they're in a good mood. Uh, But we were looking at the moon coming up, and I stated, oh, the moon's about to pop. And the little one said, oh, okay, tell me when it pops. And I think she thought it was going to explode like a balloon. You know, has it popped yet? Has it popped yet? And she was just just looking, you know, for that moment. And I said, I don't know, but I think we better make sure it doesn't. So let's hold it between our fingers, you know. So we look through our fingers, and they're looking through their fingers, and we're all squeezing it to make sure it doesn't pop. And then I said, oh, there's the man on the moon. Oh, no, he's taking a bath. And one little girl goes like this. She goes. (laughs) You know, it was so fun playing that imaginary world. And as a kid, they can enjoy that, right? Because... Hopefully the parents are watching over, allowing them the fun exploration of their uh, imagination and not being deceived. But a Christian who is in a rusted state of immaturity will be susceptible to every single false doctrine that is out there. I have seen so many poor brothers and sisters in Christ who, for some reason, 
don't dive into the Word of God, but they're willing to consume every other Christian book that is out there, and they are constantly being taken one way and then the other way. And what they do is that they'll read a book that offers this side of the coin, and they're all convinced that that's the truth until they read a book that counters that, and then they go this way, and they're, they're like this. It's a nautical term that Paul uses, tossed to and fro by every wave and every wind that comes across. But maturity will stabilize us. That maturity is a healthy understanding of God's Word. And that will lead to maturity as we apply that Word within our lives. And not only will it lead to maturity, it will protect us and further lead to unity, a unity based on maturity and not compromise, Verse 16, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies according to effective working, the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth, number one, of the body and for the edifying of itself in love. Maturity, unity, humility, patience, Meekness, love are all essential components of any healthy Christian and any healthy Christian church. To allow us to enjoy the total salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The blessings and the grace that we have been shown can properly properly be responded to by maturity and unity within the body of Christ. 